So we're working through this, uh, this series through the letter uh, of Peter to a whole series of churches in what is now modern-day Turkey. And there's various little things that we have found out along the way, one of which is that the people who he is primarily and mostly, not exclusively, but mostly writing to, are people who are from a Jewish heritage, living in a world which is filled with all of the ordinary issues of life, and they've come to a point where they have heard the message of Jesus, and they have been compelled by that message, and it has been a life-changing experience for them. Uh, That life change is dramatic uh, in its fulfillment, but it might be for many of them progressive. They might not yet have realized how life-changing this message is. It might be something which for many of us we can relate to this. It's something which over time grabs us more and more, it shapes us more and more, it convinces us more and more, and in many ways it causes more of a shift in the way we would want to live to a way that we now live compared to the way we would want to live. In other words, it changes us. And there is a compelling power that we find in the message of the Bible in Jesus. I guess that As we work through this, what we see is one of the issues that Peter is really trying to speak into into these various churches, these fledgling churches, he's trying to to get across to them the the two-sided issue of the forming of their faith and the resulting life that they live because of that faith which is now formed in them. You see that, that connection? There is a forming of faith in them which results in a way of living. I suppose we don't really think about that. You might not have thought about that before, but it's worth asking the question, um, what gets you up in the morning? (laughs) On what basis do you live? What basis do we live? Or or putting, putting it another way, as we look at the Christian faith, Is the Christian faith just a set of beliefs? You know, a set of kind of truths that we we say, yeah, tick that one, tick that one, tick that one. Yeah, I'll go with that and I'll go with that. And that's it. Is it that? Or is it something more? Many of us, I guess, don't really think about the issues of why we get up in the morning. For many of it's just the drudge of existence, isn't it? You know, we get up in the morning because we get up in the morning. Do you know what I mean by that? It's kind of, it's the thing we do. We, we go to bed at night, we get up in the morning. On a Monday to Friday, we go to work or we do whatever it might be, unless you work some strange shifts when it changes day by day. But essentially, there's this pattern to life, which is we do this, we do that. Uh, We get up in the morning maybe for some of us, um, for some it might be the excitement of life. Maybe you don't relate to that drudge of existence. Maybe you are one of those people who gets up in the morning and and life is filled with with things to do. That's That's a bless, that's a privilege. Uh, As long as those things to do, which are great things to do, are in proportion 
to, to the reality of who we are. Because there might be the excitement of life. I guess even for some of us over this past couple of days, given that it's the weekend, for some it might have been, I got up this morning or yesterday morning or the morning before uh, as a moment of escape from the drudge of life. So, so actually we live for particular punctuating moments in our lives which make all the rest worth living. You know, I finally get to that, that kind of, that finishing line, which is uh, half past three on a Friday at half term. That is just a great time. And that's it now. Uh, that's my punctuating moment because the next few days are going to be great. Let me just mention that there's a whole group of other people who are thinking that the punctuating moment is at half past eight the following Monday when they go back. That's, kind of, that's the great moment. You see the kind of the way in which we experience our lives. Paul is critical, uh, Peter is critically concerned here that the people who engage with this letter that is being sent around from from congregation to congregation, little church group that is meeting in people's homes or, or in a small gathering here and there around this, this uh, block of land which sits between Europe and Asia. He's concerned that this group of people have a clear issue on what their faith is all about. And by God's Spirit, what has happened is that this letter penned by the Apostle Peter, has been protected, it's been uh, cared and nurtured miraculously over 2,000 years and reaches us today, and I guess in a similar way it's saying to us today that Peter is desperately concerned that we understand what that faith which is building in our hearts is really all about and how it changes our lives, how it shapes our lives. Why is he concerned? Because the Spirit of God working through his word is concerned for us to understand that. Now, I guess for all of us here, that is going to impact us in, in one way or another. We might be thinking uh, about our, our, our walk of faith. We know that we're a believer in Jesus, and what we need to be, uh, need to happen this afternoon is we need to be reminded of a few things. You know, and, and another few pushes along the way. There's a great advert on at the, uh, at the moment. I can't remember which car it's advertising, but it's, uh, it starts with, with, with a dad who's kind of guiding his little boy, um, just keeping him in the right lane. It starts off with a sack race, and he's straying, and he kind of pushes him in the right direction, keeps him in line. And uh, he says, that's my boy. And, uh, and then the next thing is he's swimming into the side of the pool and his dad just gently pushes him and that's my boy. And then he gets in this super swish car with these sensors that, that automatically give a warning to his dad that he's straying out of the lane and the dad gets back into lane and, uh, and the little boy in the car seat says, that's my boy. You know? well, well, in a way, the Bible is saying, that's my boy. I want you to be reminded of a few things which knock you back into line. It's not, it's not a painful knock, it's a gentle reminder. It's a kind of keep in this, 
keeping this set of understandings of your faith. Because if, if you don't, you're going to stray. You're going to drift out of your lane. You're going to bump into the side of the pool. You're going to miss the finishing line of the sack race. Whatever picture we might use, it is essential that for many of us, we are reminded of elements of our faith just to keep us knocked, in, knocked along the way as we bounce around this lane that we're seeking to walk. That's what the Bible does for us. For others, it might be an understanding of what the lane is. You know, what, what is this Christian faith all about? And so it's this setting of the lane uh, and it might be, I'm, I'm just at the starting line. I'm ready to run the race. Now, just give me a few starters. That's what, for many of these first hearers, what this letter was all about. Just, here's, here's these things that you've heard. Let me tell you, just for the second time, remind you again, so that you are kept in the lane that you should be. Uh, and for others of us, I guess, here this afternoon, it might be, and observing this is the lane. It is an invitation, therefore, to say, how are you going to live your life? On what lane are you journeying through your life? What sets your boundaries? What sets the boundaries of what you are going to live, what you're not going to live? How are you going to be shaped? I think the first thing that we see in verse 7 is that we see that this faith is a proven faith. It's a proven faith. First thing that we see. The way that it is proven, as we've already mentioned last week in verse 6, it says, uh, in, the, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer trials, uh, suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he's, we're already getting a picture of what's going on. Uh, what, the way the, the, the letters in the New Testament, they don't start off with a kind of disconnected description of what's going on in the, in the scene at the time. We pick up what's going on as we journey through the letter. So what we see here is that this group of people have started to suffer because of their belief in the Bible. Now what we know from various other writers, is the ways in which people would suffer because of their faith in the Bible and the faith in Jesus. We understand that initially the Christian faith was considered just another Jewish sect. Now, the Jewish faith was considered acceptable. It was one of those, if you like, authorized faiths within the Roman Empire. And so, the initially, the Christian faith was below the radar because it was just another of these Jewish faiths, a sect of this Jewish faith, which was acceptable. The Jews had, had been established for so long that they were kind of accepted within society. But then what started to emerge was that Jewish, uh, the Jewish perspective on the Christian faith was starting to say, hang on a sec, this isn't just, this isn't part of us. And so the Christian commitment ended up marginalized. It was marginalized by the society in which they lived, and it was marginalized by the Jewish community in which they initially found their residence. And so we find a group of people who are now isolated in a culture where what you believed was absolutely essential for the way that you got on in life. 
You know that our sets of our sets of spiritual beliefs in our society, uh, and in certainly, well, I guess no, that's pro- probably maybe that's a bit of a sweeping statement. Maybe in years gone by, our, our our sets of beliefs did have an effect on the way that we lived. You know, if you kind of tick the right boxes, in in you know, 50, 100 years ago, if you could tick that you went to the right church school and all the rest of it, and your beliefs kind of met this blueprint of what we ought to be, then maybe you'd get on in life. But now I guess that's reversing. But here's a group of people who are finding that their way of living, that literally their livelihoods were coming under threat for what they believed. How does Peter relate to that? He says it's happening, What does he say in verse 7 is actually going on? Because I I would guess that this is massively important for us to understand in our generation today. As we look at a shift, a shift which is taking place in our culture, which is unlike anything that we've probably seen in 500, 600 years, where, if you like, the Christian perspective is increasingly marginalized. We now live in a world where, unlike the past, where the Christian idea was the, the, the general view, as Don Carson puts it, in the 1960s and 1970s, when somebody said they didn't believe in God, he at least was able to say that they didn't believe in the God of the Bible, because it was so... The idea of the Christian faith was so pervasive, it was everywhere. Uh, And now that's not clear. Now we're living in a world which is very different. We need to define the God that we don't believe in now. And so the the idea of the Christian faith is now a marginalized, it is a voice amongst many, (laughs) which is far better than it was for these first hearers at this particular point in our location. I'm not talking about other parts of the world where it is very different and to be a believer in Jesus is a matter of life and death. That is the case. But in our culture at the moment, we are a voice amongst many. How do we respond to that? How should we behave in that kind of context? Well, verse 7 has something dramatic to say, doesn't it? Because for these individuals who were facing trials because of it, Peter says, consider this, that these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, he's saying, you need to understand that the challenges that you're facing, the difficulties that you're facing, are not something, they are not things to, they are not things to kind of parade about and be proud of, but nor are they things to rail against and be disgusted by. They are things which are there which are functional. They are doing something. They're not to be loved. One of the uh, problems in the second century with the the Christian faith was that some people got into their heads that the idea of opposition and martyrdom was something almost to be sought. That is not to be sought. 
but it is to be understood. And what we understand is that it is doing something. And it's related to gold. Many of us will be wearing gold right at this moment in time. We, we don't really... I mean, it's, gold is a precious metal. But we don't think about gold in the way the ancients thought about gold. When we put our ancient sandals on and think about this little picture that Peter portrays regarding gold, we start to understand a little bit more about what he's saying. Gold is fascinating. We get a little hint of the way it works here, as we see in verse 7, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. One of the things that you do with gold to, to, to create pure gold is get rid of the impurities, you burn it out. One of the things that's amazing about gold is that, um, we won't go into all of the chemical issues, I've, I've got confused by reading up about that this week. You can actually destroy gold, but generally by heating it up you can't destroy gold. Okay. Uh, and what you do is you kind of, you, kind of you, you refine it and you burn it and you burn it and you burn it and you more, the, more kind of, the more heat that you bring to gold, the more it becomes pure gold. You're getting rid of all of the rubbish. That is amazing, isn't it? In other words, the thing that seems to, as you would assume with everything else, would damage the gold actually becomes the thing which proves it to be gold. By burning out the rubbish, it reveals it to be something that it really is. In other words, if you take another item which looks like gold, and you burn it and burn it and heat it up, and it just disappears into nothing, it was proved not to be gold by the burning. Now relate that to the idea of trials. He's saying to these Christians in this first century, do you understand that these challenges of, and difficulties, when they come to bear, when they are burning on you, and when you come out the other side still believing in Jesus, that is proving your faith. It's proving that your faith is real. Why? Because by nature, we have a tendency to live in a way which avoids problems. We live in a way which avoids difficulty, which avoids trial. If difficulties come upon us, if trials come upon us, we tend to find ways to avoid them. Some trials, because of our faith, cannot be avoided, and yet they don't destroy our belief in Jesus. And that proves it to be true. That's what he's saying. He says, you come out the other end, and you, you, you kind of, some would, some, many, actually, here, can relate to this. Say, do you know what? I've been through that. I can't believe that I'm still believing in Jesus. But I am. I would say that you would talk to many people who've been Christians for many years and they would be able to speak to you and say, do you know what, I can really relate to that. 
I can relate that in human terms I should not be a believer in Jesus because it seems in human terms that God has let me down again and again and again. There's been this difficulty, there's been that difficulty, there's been that hardship, but I haven't. I haven't, I haven't given up. I, have, I still, in fact, I believe more in Him now. I have more trust in Him now than before that. And it didn't turn out great. It's not as though God made sure that everything was fine. But I believe more in Jesus. In other words, that difficulty proved, burnt out the rubbish, burnt out maybe some of the doubts, burnt out some of the questions, and what's resulting is true faith and belief in Jesus. Those of you who know a little bit about the periodic table know that the periodic symbol for gold is AU. That comes from the Greek, which, mean, which is, comes from the word aurum, or the shining dawn. That's what aurum means. It's one of the qualities of gold. It doesn't tarnish. It's shining. Great archaeological program on the, you know, you, you now know what Sado programs I watch, don't you? Really great. Uh, archaeological program, bottom of the sea, pulling out these Egyptian pieces of gold from thousands of years ago that are still shining. It's quite amazing. Do Do you know what the ancients considered gold to have a particular property? They considered it to be emblematic of glory and immortality because you couldn't burn it away. And because it continued to shine. You couldn't get rid of gold, in other words, in their world. You couldn't destroy it. The more you brought to bear against it, the more it shone. And it lasted longer than them, in other words. It seemed as though this metal had the property of immortality. You know, really, gold is not that valuable. Really, in one sense. It's how we believe it to be. It's this whole history of this remarkable metal which carries in the ancient world these properties of immortality. I don't think of the the ring that I wear as an immortal ring. That doesn't remind me of immortality and glory, but it would if I was an ancient. And now do you see how important the next bit is? Though you have not seen Him, you love Him, And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He steps from this picture of trial into this picture of eternal glory. This idea of Jesus, who has become our Savior, who is our Savior, by His work on the cross, but Jesus is the eternal God. He is the one who died and lives. In other words, in Peter's mind, he's, he's suggesting this little picture which says, do you remember the idea that we see in Jesus in His immortality that we looked at the other week? We see that He was, my, was He burned in the furnace? I mean, he was absolutely, the furnace was turned up to max. He was destroyed in human terms. And yet, 
he lived. In fact, more than that, he was revealed again after the burning of his death in his glory, which he took to heaven. You see how powerful this is? You see how amazing this is? How, how this changes everything in our day-to-day lives. In other words, he's saying, because you understand what Jesus has done, Your relationship with Him is not a set of functional beliefs. It is expressed in love. That is so cliched, the idea of loving Jesus. It's not cool for guys to talk about loving Jesus. But that's how Peter talks about it. And he is not a wimp when he talks about it. He's saying essentially this, that when you understand what the unseen Jesus has done, your love for Him is the kind of love that you would declare for anything which is of absolute value to you. You will give everything for that. (laughs) You know, there's some people who love sport or activity. They talk. Guys, we talk about, we love it in that way. We don't feel embarrassed about talking about love in that way. This is not a mushy love. It's a love which says, I will commit myself to that even though it's going to cost me my life. That is not sentimental. That is saying that uh, that that idea and that person And that salvation work has grabbed me so completely that I will give everything for it. It is a proven faith. We're going to work quickly through the next bit. Because this faith is a connected faith. Look at what it says in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. That is a long verse. Let's make it really quite straightforward. He's saying this, do you understand that this isn't something new? That's one of the ways in which the Jews would discount the Christian faith. They would say, essentially, we, 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 we're going to kind of ostracize you because this is just a newfangled thing. Uh, and Peter is absolutely intent in ensuring that these new Christians understand that they are truly connected to the heritage of the work of God in this world. In other words, he's saying this, the prophets, those who constructed the message of God throughout time, which is contained in the Jewish uh, holy scriptures, which had been well established. You would go to any synagogue in the whole of the, uh, the ancient world, and you would be able to go to the Old Testament. It's there. And he's saying this, do you understand that all of those connections all of those ways in which God spoke through 
those people was looking forward to something. He's saying they were searching intently, they were working diligently. Do you see how God constructed his word? Just a little aside. He used the intentional work of ordinary people. He used their own personalities. He used their own styles of writing. He used the way that they wrote. He used their circumstances. And he infilled it with the Spirit of God so that what they were doing was his work in their words. Do you see that? Do you see that it was God's words in man's words? It was God working through these spirits as they worked uh, through these individuals, as these prophets, as they were searching intently for, with great care, trying to find out what about the Messiah. Well, guess what? We know him now. It's Jesus. He's here. He's, he's been. <laughs> the Messiah has come. That's what the whole of the Bible is, is centered on. If you're new to the Bible, that's what the Bible is about. The whole of the Bible is about the coming of the Messiah. It's about what the Messiah was, and then it's about what the Messiah is going to do throughout the rest of time. That's what the Bible is all about. So he's saying you need to understand that this isn't some haphazard set of beliefs. This is connected to what God has been saying throughout time. Secondly, he's saying you need to understand We need to understand that we are part of something which is unimaginably big. It is unimaginably big. He goes on to say, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, these people who were writing, they had an insight. There's a whole load of people who were reading what they were saying, and they were saying it's all about, it's all about us in Babylon, it's all about us in Egypt, it's all about us and what's gone on in our, but those who were writing, they understood something way bigger. They understood that this was actually the gathering together of God's people, the gathering together of people who would believe in Jesus. It wasn't about a a little nation. It was about the world. It was about the gathering together of people just like you and just like me. In other words, this verse resonates over the centuries, so it speaks to us today. Do you realize that what God has been doing down through the millennia, through His Word, has been about speaking and gathering in you and me. We are part, if we believe in Jesus, of something unimaginably big. Sometimes we think the Christian faith is a tiny little thing. It's a kind of, you know, it's just few people here and there, it's on the decline. The Christian faith, the message of God, the purpose of God, step by step, stepping stone by stepping stone, deliberate intention along the way, makes this message part of something unimaginably huge. That is, as, as somebody who shares that with you, that is 
on the one hand, it is terrifying to think that what we're sharing today is part of something which has gone on from the very... This is part of God's purpose from the very beginning of creating the world. It's that big. It's terrifying to think that we stand in that stream of Him speaking. And at the same time, (laughs) it is so securing. It is so amazingly securing. It actually means this. It means that as we work out how to stay in the lane, little bits of understanding as we go along the way, as we're kind of shaped to just nudge in from the right a bit, nudge in from stay in, stay in what is the truth of Jesus. As we go along on that journey, as we saw the other week, we are part of the ongoing, immediate, direct purpose of God in yours and my life. And so what is faith? That proven faith. That, that stuff that when the fire comes and it burns out, all of the dross, uh, and those kind of many occasions that we, it's been a privilege to share where the conversation has gone something like this. I had all these questions, uh, and, then, and then I came to see who Jesus was, and he, he compelled me with this truth of who he was. And the questions didn't go away, but number one, I ask them now in a completely different way. And number two, they don't seem anywhere near as important as they did before. That's a little bit of the impurities being burnt out and this beautiful gold being revealed. That means, as somebody who is sharing this with you, thankfully, it does not depend on me. That is great news. It absolutely depends on the Spirit of God who was working in people who were writing the Old Testament in ancient times. It depends on the Spirit of God who was writing the New Testament through those writers of uh, near ancient times. It depends on the Spirit of God who has worked in the church for the past 2,000 years. And it depends on the Spirit of God who is working in you and me today. Do you know what? That, that, that takes a huge burden of responsibility. Because the reality is I can never persuade you. But when you are compelled by the Spirit of God The reality is we get up every morning and we are nudged just a little bit more to stay in lane. And the beautiful thing is, we don't hear it. We're loving somebody who we do not see. But our Father in heaven is effectively saying, that's my boy or that's my girl. As we're just nudged a little bit more into shape as we get to understand a little bit more. And we, we've now learned, you know what, I'm not going to stray off in that direction because I now know what it does. That's the Spirit of God working in us. 
and it also shapes us day by day. It's why we get up in the morning.